Welcome to the Grattan Podcast Channel. I'm Paul Austin, the editor at Grattan Institute, and today we're discussing one of the most important policy debates of our time, energy and climate change policy. Australia is in the throes of an historic transition from old and dirty to new and clean energy. Whether we like it or not, we have to move to a new emissions economy. But we're all pretty keen that as we make that transition, the lights stay on and our electricity bills don't get too high. Lower emissions, reasonable prices and reliable supply. It's proving to be a difficult trifecta. And according to my guests today, our governments are getting the balance wrong. I'm delighted to be joined by two Grattan gurus. First, our Energy Program Director, Tony Wood. Tony, welcome to you. Thanks, Paul. And also our Energy Fellow, Guy Dundas. G'day, Guy. Hi, Paul. Tony and Guy have just published a new report called Power Play, How Governments Can Better Direct Australia's Electricity Market. I'll come to the how soon, but first, Tony, what are the problems you're trying to solve with this report? What are we getting wrong? Following up on your introduction, Paul, there is a great energy transition occurring, bigger than we've seen in the last 100 years since we first started supplying electricity from small coal-fired generators in Victoria, supplied by coal from New South Wales, interestingly enough. And, you know, this transition is going to occur the challenge we have is that we can either do it well or we can do it badly. And in that process, what becomes critical is the role of governments. Now, energy in this country for most of its history has been supplied, the energy system was owned and managed by governments. But in the late 1990s, we came to a view that there would be a more efficient and effective way to deliver the same service at lower cost. And that became the national energy market, national electricity market. Now, having established that market with agencies to run the market, um, it's not about set and forget. Inevitably, things change and the market, and the market is like any tool, has to be adjusted and maintained. But what we found in the last three or four years, Paul, is that government seems to have lost confidence in the very market they created. And what they've been doing now in response to Things that have occurred, not, not necessarily at anybody's fault, such as the climate is changing, old coal-fired power stations have to be retired and so forth. But in response to some of these changes, rather than work through that market and with the agencies they themselves created, governments have chosen to so go over the top. And as a result of that, we've seen direct government intervention through subsidies or direct ownership um, or even threats to that process. And that becomes a very vicious circle or a, a slippery slope, whichever analogy you prefer. And I think that's where we're concerned that we need to get off um, out of that circle or off that slope. Otherwise, um, things are not going to improve. And even the best attempts being made today um, are going to come a full foul of this sort of continual government intervention. Okay, so government's going over the top, Guy. I'm interested in... Um the potted history of recent energy policy in Australia that you detail in the report. It's a pretty grim tale, actually, that dates back to a certain big event in South Australia in 2016. Tell us about that, Guy. That's right, Paul. I think we really identify a shift in mentality uh, amongst governments to around the period 2016-17. And the clearest single event is the statewide blackout in South Australia on the 28th of September 2016. 
I'm sure people remember the headlines. Uh, being a South Australian, I was the butt of a few jokes uh, in the weeks and months after that event. Um, and that really probably fired the starting gun. But we saw a bit of a perfect storm follow on really for about the next uh, six to nine months after that. So we saw um, the announcement of the Hazelwood uh, coal power station closing. That was announced in November 2016 and then only happened in March 2017. Now, five months is a very short period of notice to uh, have such a big change in the market and that saw a lot of concern and that saw prices rise. We also saw a, a particularly hot summer and we saw some load shedding in, in February of that year and we also saw a, a break in the network uh, cause the... Uh, I guess, iconic Alcoa Portland aluminium smelter to lose power and, and suffer major technical damage during December. And again, there was a government response to that event, which was to throw more taxpayer money at Alcoa, was it not? Uh, that's right. So uh, I guess with that swirl of events, and, and you can just imagine how this plays out in the media and how this plays out in political offices, um, we saw quite a quick response. Uh, I, I guess we'll get to the reasons about why we don't think that was necessarily the best response. But the, the key responses were um, initially from the, uh, well, the first one was the Alcoa bailout that, that you mentioned, Paul, that happened um, during January 2017. Uh, in terms of I guess getting to uh, the energy supply side, we saw a couple of uh, quick interventions follow in March 2017. So the South Australian government announced a plan that had several measures, but probably the highest profile was that they would build their own power station because they didn't see investors as um, being willing or able to invest. So they kind of took matters into their own hand and um, built some diesel generators that were later converted to gas. And the federal government, just a day later, announced uh, what was called then a game changer, the Snowy 2.0 pumped hydro uh, scheme. So this is, um, at the time, people talked about $2 billion. It's now looking more like $5-plus billion of government money going into um, a very substantial investment in the electricity market, directly owning generation assets. And more recently, of course, we've had the big stick come out from the federal government. What is the big stick yeah, so look, I think uh, one more point <clears throat> contextually is that we saw this 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 pattern of intervention, and then um, people focused in on on um, a policy called the National Energy Guarantee as being something that would create a framework within which to um, guide the energy sector. Uh, and really, there was quite broad consensus that something like that was needed, and that was developed um, during the second half of 2017 and the first half of 2018. And the industry, I think kind of got over some of the concerns that had happened in that summer of 16, 17, and people started to feel a bit more confident. Uh, what we saw was uh, political events took over. Uh, Prime Minister Turnbull lost his job and the National Energy Guarantee was um, uh, collateral damage as part of that process. And we saw a, a really a reset. And, and we think a return to the 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 bad pattern of, of relatively uh, chaotic interventions. So what we saw come out of that change of um, policy was um, the big stick legislation. So this is essentially um, threatening quite substantial penalties on, on companies uh, in response to certain market behaviours and also um, what was known as the Underwriting New Generation Investments Program. So this is a 
in a sense, a, a, a broader version of, of the sort of in intervention we saw with Snowy 2.0, with federal, the federal government essentially saying, we'll pick a few winners out of a short list of a, a, almost a beauty contest of potential generation projects and just try and stick some more capacity into the market. So you're describing really an avalanche of ad hocery here, um, uh, Guy, but you also make the point that, of course, Governments have to respond when there are big dramatic events like a mass blackout or big increases in prices. Um, on the other hand, you make quite forcefully the point that knee-jerk policy reactions come at a cost. Look, that's absolutely right. Pardon my cynicism, but you can almost see the beer coasters and envelopes that some of these policies have been developed on the back of. What we really want to see, and I think what investors are crying out for, is predictable and rules-based policies. So it's not that, as Tony said, it's not that the sector is set and forget. It's that when you're using these powerful levers and, and using the power of government to shape how the sector will transition, people who are sinking billions of dollars of capital need to understand um, how that will uh, progress. And if it's done in an ad hoc manner, that will really chill investment. And one of the benefits, surely, of a market system is that things like high prices, that's, that's a problem that has the, hacky, the happy knack of producing its own solution. Certainly. So in a well-functioning market, you would expect to see investment in response to high prices. And we have seen that in the national electricity market. That's primarily come through new renewable generation. And I think there's been a debate about whether that's being driven purely by subsidies, such as the large-scale renewable energy target. Our reading is that the, the sheer volume of investment has gone beyond what that policy would require. And so it really is a sign that the market is responding and that that is contributing significantly to expected price falls that are taking their time to come into view, but are very likely to happen over the next two or three years. Let me ask another question about the operation of the market. You, you criticise the government for trying to pick winners and you suggest that that scares off private investment. How does that work? As I mentioned before, the renewable investment is flowing and, and you could say that's because those investments, the case for them is really strong. So government intervention or no intervention, there's a very clear case for those, in, um, for those investments. The ones that are harder and, and where we're getting to the point where people are really um, keen to see a, another wave of investment is in what's called dispatchable generation. So that's generation that can turn on and off in response to market circumstances and most commonly in response to high demand on, let's say, a very hot summer afternoon. What we haven't seen is investment in dispatchable generation to complement those uh, solar and wind generators, which, as we all know, will produce when the sun is shining and when the, or when the wind is blowing, but not necessarily uh, all the time. We're expecting to see, or we're very much hoping to see, new investment in dispatchable generation. But what the, particularly the Snowy 2.0 investment and the underwriting new generations investment program have done is say, we, the federal government, are going to sponsor our own dispatchable generation projects. Now, these projects are often not going to be built until 2023, 2024, 2025. But why would you build today if you've got a project that's effectively shovel ready when you're seeing these government subsidised competitors coming down the pipeline in subsequent years. And so you can see how the government's interventions have actually displaced the very very investment that they want to see. Okay, so another government intervention or sign of government action relates to power, uh, big pardon, to coal power stations. The government seems to be upping the fight to rescue and keep open coal stations. 
What are they doing and what's wrong with that? So that's exactly right, Paul. The the new battleground is around the Liddell Power Station in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales, and, and that is likely to be the next major coal power station to close in Australia. So what we've seen here is that the owner of, of Liddell uh, AGL have given quite a lot of notice of the closure of that plant. They first announced it way back in 2015 for a 2022 closure, which has since been updated to 2023. What that's done is it's... It, that's exactly what they should be doing because it gives the market, both themselves and their competitors, an opportunity to replace that capacity, keep the lights on and make sure that that doesn't lead to a big price shock. But unfortunately, what it's done is it's put a big political target right on their chest. The, the federal government has been particularly concerned about the effects of this closure, not really recognising, I think, that the difference between the Liddell case and the Hazelwood case is really chalk and cheese. Hazelwood gave five months notice, AGL has given in the order of seven years notice for Liddell. So really these cases are very different and AGL has kind of been, uh, I guess, unfairly targeted as, you know, you're going to lead to bad reliability and high prices. How about we extend the life of this power station or how are you going to replace it? And there's been a lot of political pressure on AGL, culminating very recently, just last, just in August, um, with a Commonwealth-led task force looking into options to manage the this closure. The ones that we hear most about have been life extension or what we heard, uh, the term like-for-like like replacement, which, to be honest, no one really knows what that means. So clearly there's a lot of pressure around this closure. We think that if the government just allows the market to respond to that natural signal, uh, that, that closure is entirely manageable. And in fact, threatening to keep this plant open just deters the very investment that will replace it. Now, Tony, this, this report is, I'm pleased to say, not all gloom and doom. Happily, you have some solutions. Indeed, there's an entire chapter called Getting Back on the Right Track. So tell me, please, how do we get back on track? Paul, one needs to think very briefly, at least, about the nature of the electricity market. This is not a place like your local farmer's market where buyers and sellers come together, presumably, um, under some sort of licence to have the park available, and they just sell, sell stuff and buy stuff. This is a deliberately structured market implemented by governments with agencies to support it. It is not a laissez faire, um, open, unregulated market by any means. And that's where I think people sometimes get it wrong. They think, well, the market is some sort of sacrosanct animal we have to worship at. It's not. It is fundamentally a creature of government. It is there to do fundamentally two or three things. One is to encourage new investment. And from the private sector, the idea is that if we have efficient markets, they will deliver efficient investment. Ultimately, those uh, participants in the market will compete with each other. That will bring down, that will produce the lowest costs and the highest reliability. So that's the principle. Now, to try and get this back on track, um, we've made several recommendations. Um, the first of which, and they all comply with a principle. That principle is that we should be looking to commit to the, the market we've structured. Now. There are things already the government has done to ensure that the reliability and the new investment side of this should be happening. They've got a retailer reliability obligation that has now been implemented, and they've instigated a review of the market post-2025 to ensure that the market does what it is supposed to do into the future. However, what they should be doing is sticking to that, having said we've got these initiatives, to then 
instigate new programs of the sort that um, Guy's been describing, which more or less are conflicting with those very initiatives, is a quite bizarre and certainly destructive thing to do. And so in our view, there's a, the fundamental is to stick to these, get, stick to that principle. And in particular, the underlying idea is that where governments do need to intervene in the market, and sometimes they will feel compelled to do so by things we've talked about already, then they do that on a rules base, and they do it through the existing institutions. And that way, we've got some chance of doing so. When we, so when we look at specifically the, the recommendations beyond that, um, we've got a couple of those where governments can intervene, but we also would suggest that um, the complementary thing the governments need to do, and we're talking about governments plural here, state and federal, the, thing we complement, the complementary things governments need to do is think about the climate mess we've created in terms of policy. Because in addition to... Um, the uncertainty created by governments intervening in the market, we also have the uncertainty of not having clear climate policy. How that evolves is very important. And if the current coalition government is unable or unwilling to adopt some form of climate policy, then in our view, it falls to the states and territories to do that together. It's not the best option, but maybe that would be the best outcome if the Commonwealth is simply not able to play. So they're the broad things we would recommend. And then we've got a couple of specific ideas where governments can and probably could intervene productively. So that's a fascinating proposition on climate policy. Clearly, climate is intimately intertwined with energy policy. But you're, what you're contemplating there is the states turning away from the Commonwealth and going it alone. To some extent, we've already got a bit of that. Unfortunately, the approach that's being taken is both chaotic and uncoordinated. And so, for example, um, the Victorian government and to some extent the Queensland government have their own emissions reduction policies because targets, because they think the government Commonwealth hasn't got one. And secondly, they have implemented renewable energy programs to support those targets. Now, the difficulty with the way they've done that is another example of what we've been talking about in this report. And that is, you've got governments directly intervening to contract with renewable energy projects in the market. That, not surprisingly, is another example of the concerns that Guy has raised that those projects therefore are competing with other projects which might deliver more efficient renewable energy in other parts of Australia at lower cost. So what we're suggesting is look, if state governments and territory governments really do have this concern about climate policy and the Commonwealth's not able to do it, then it does make sense for them to work together potentially to, to achieve a different outcome but they should pull back from these unilateral interventionist programs and think about how they might do it on a more comprehensive basis. Guy, can I ask you about uh, transmission? Am I right in thinking that transmission is a bit more tricky in an energy system that increasingly relies on renewables, on wind and sun? How can governments in these circumstances better facilitate investment in transmission? Absolutely, Paul. I think that's right. There's a, a pretty strong consensus in the industry that more transmission will be needed to take advantage of the fact that when it's windy in South Australia, it might not be windy in, say, New South Wales and vice versa. And there's a strong case for, for more transmission. Why we really think there's scope for governments to do important work in this area is Firstly, uh, to highlight that where we have a, an investment-led and market-driven approach to, um, to generation, the transmission sector is quite different. So it's heavily regulated. You've essentially got a, a series of bodies that plan uh, networks in each state 
and a, and a body that looks at how that will um, come together. That's the Australian Energy Market Operator. And they have to apply to a regulator for uh, funding, essentially, to undertake the investments that they think are worthwhile. And that's because those costs are passed on to consumers. So there's a need for a check and balance to ensure that those investments are efficient. So we have a very centralised process there in transmission, where in the market we have a very dynamic and investment-led process. So governments can probably interact better with a planning-type structure than they can with a market-type structure just by the nature of those two processes. But what we do see is that in that regulatory structure in transmission, uh, it, it's good that it protects consumers against bad investments, but the downside is that it's quite slow. So we see investments playing out roughly as follows. That there's about a two to three year regulatory process, then there's about a two year uh, planning process, and then there's about a two year construction process. So add them up, the project takes about six to seven years. And in a case where we've got rapid changes in technology and a really strong case for investment now, it's quite costly to wait that full time. So How can we speed up? Yeah, so this is where governments get involved. We've seen several, most notably the New South Wales and South Australian governments, um, uh, provide a, essentially an underwriting guarantee to early planning works on a key interconnector between South Australia and New South Wales. So what that does is it allows that middle stage, the early, early planning stage, to proceed in parallel with the regulatory process. So by doing that, you can save quite a lot of time. And there are other opportunities to streamline rules around how, uh, how that overall process works. Now, governments are getting involved, and that's great. And, and we think that this is a really positive contribution. We are concerned that if this becomes the permanent model, uh, investment will become far too dependent on budgetary processes, which, let's be honest, is subject to the political wins of the day and the fiscal wins of the day. So what we'd actually like to see is, again, that to move further to a proper rules-based process where the, uh, the economic regulator gives special allowance for those early works funding to be approved and undertaken in advance of the overall project being approved. Now, what about coal, Guy? Can I turn your attention to coal? Uh, firstly, set the scene for me. Is coal inexorably in decline in Australia? Yes, so uh, the existing stock is aging, and that's really because it's not being replaced. And that's for several important reasons. Uh, one is climate policy and climate risk generally. So investors just don't think that if they build a 40-year coal-fired power station, there won't be any climate policy affecting that station in 30 or 40 years' time. So irrespective of the policy of the government of the day, um, new coal is just not on the table. But apart from that, the economics have really moved against coal. So uh, the costs have risen and the cost of the uh, the cost of building one has risen and the cost of fuel has increased as well. And of course, we've seen renewables come down in price. So really, there's um, that transition is inevitable. The question is, how do you manage it properly? Exactly. And you have a particular proposal for Australia to do better with regard to these inevitable coal closures. That's right. So let me first say what not to do. So the Hazelwood example is clearly not a positive example. We don't want, and I don't think we can afford another Hazelwood, uh, the market effects and the, the, the way it has undermined confidence in our broader functioning, uh, the, the broader functioning of the electricity market is just completely undesirable. Uh, the Liddell task force also is just too ad hoc and unpredictable. We just don't know what's going to come out of that process. We, need, we clearly need better policies and better systems for managing this. 
So something that has happened that is a step in the right direction, but in our view, not enough, is what's called the three-year notice of closure rule. So uh, the Finkel review, which people might recall from 2017, Chief Scientist Alan Finkel looked at the overall working of the energy system and and proposed this three-year rule. It was picked up by the Energy Security Board and recently implemented as a rule. Uh, And the intention is quite simple. Generators are required to give three years of notice of their closure. Now, the principle's fine, and we think that some companies will um, comply with that rule in part due to just wanting to be a good corporate citizen and in part because there are modest penalties associated with non-compliance. But uh, for something as important as this, we don't think it has enough teeth and the mechanism just won't work if it's really tested. Uh, There's nothing to stop someone from saying, I'm going to close in three years' time, and then a year later saying, actually, I'm going to close in three years' time, and then continuously pushing that date back, which effectively means they're completely unrestricted in when they can close. What we actually want to do is have a mechanism that balances both the need to prevent early closure, but also the need to prevent late closure. We don't want these things drifting on for for decades, the climate can't afford it, and it will just create too much uncertainty for the energy system, the transition we know is happening. So the concept that we're looking at is is a closure window. You don't close too early, you don't close too late. That's kind of the Goldilocks solution, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But you need to have some financial incentives to deliver that. And the proposal we have is that generators, coal generators, would be required to put uh, funds into uh, escrow, so essentially a holding fund. They would have them returned if they close within a window that they themselves nominate, but not if they close either too early or too late. So in the example that they close too early, we could use that pool of funds to deal with uh, any reliability implications that might come from a sudden and unexpected early closure. So for example, the energy market operator might be able to procure short-term backup supplies. Tony, I'm going to ask you to sum up for us, and I wonder if I could ask you to do it this way. There's soon to be a meeting of the COAG Energy Council. That is all the federal and state and territory energy ministers in Australia. I want you to imagine, Tony, you get the opportunity to address that very important meeting. You've got only a couple of minutes to tell them what to do and what not to do to give Australia better climate and energy policy direction. Your time starts now. This is important because the Coag Energy Council, which meets, supposed to meet twice a year, and this will be its first meeting this year, is guided by a thing called the Australian Energy Market Agreement. And that sets out not only the role of the council, but it also sets out the role of the agencies that operate the market. So the implication of all this is the Coag Energy Council is responsible for the market and for the way it operates and the way it develops. So my advice to the Coag Energy Council is to firstly hold the mirror up to what they've been doing. And this is, as, as we've been discussing at a state and federal level, cutting right across um, the fundamental commitment that is recognised by this market agreement, to which they all signed, not the individuals obviously, but their predecessors some years ago. So we're reminding them that this is the fundamental approach that was agreed. We have now seen that agreement being uh, honoured in the breach, and we now find ourselves in a situation where this intervention is creating unacceptable risk for investment. So we do not deny for a second that governments sometimes are compelled or feel compelled to act when things go wrong. 
The issue is how might they do that through the very process that they designed and to which they committed. And we've got some specific recommendations how they could do that. And our view is if we could see them then return to a rules-based process through the existing institutions, we might have some chance of achieving this great energy transition in a way that all of us, I think, would really desire. Thank you, Tony. And thank you, Guy, for your penetrating work on this report and for your expertise and your explanations today. And thank you to you, our listeners. If you'd like to listen to other Grattan podcasts or read the Power Play report that we've been discussing today, or indeed any of our other reports and articles on energy policy and a whole lot more besides, head to our website, grattan.edu.au. It's all there, live and free. And you can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news and events by following us on Twitter, at GrattanInst, or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, then please help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes and leaving us a rating or review. Thanks for listening. <laughs>